kind of approached me and said, I'm preparing, as he was preaching last week, and said, I've kind of been studying ahead. Would you mind if I preached the previous or the following week as, uh, as well? And I got to thinking about us coming back on Saturday, not sure when we would get back and how I would feel when we get back. And of course, right now, I have no idea where I am, what I'm doing. I'm keeping my words very uh, short because if I keep speaking, I'm going to say something that I have no idea what I'm saying and who knows what could happen. But I had an opportunity last night to listen to the message from last week and I was just so blessed. And I was telling Misty this morning, I said, there was nothing that he said that I would not have said. Now, he used a few words I would not have used and I would not have used them because I had no idea what they mean. But other than that, um, everything, the, the points were so amazing and so thankful, and I got to be in here the first service as well, so just get ready to be absolutely, have your mind blown by the picture of the Spirit of God, who He is to us and for us. So with that said, Brother Davis, you can come on up and give us God's Word. All right. You clap now. Good morning. It's so blessed to be with you this morning and bring a message from the Word of God. And Micah, uh, there's a, more than one of us in this room that are feeling what you're feeling right now. All we can say is stay hydrated and try to get back on your normal sleep set schedule as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, like, uh, unlike those of us who have done this before, you get the opportunity to not operate heavy, heavy machinery uh, after a nice long plane ride. It's always a dangerous situation whenever we deploy... Uh, across the world, multiple time zones, 19, 20-hour flights, and hit the ground and try to try to do something meaningful. He did a lot more meaningful things than I have ever done after a plane ride, though, because he went, he brought the gospel message to lost people. And boy, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll do that. Yeah, I know how to deploy. Uh, it is again a privilege to uh, bring the message to you, and we praise God for the work our mission team did on the on the missionary field this week. And gotta say, I thank God for their safe return. And um, I know we're going to hear some amazing testimony from this mission team. God was doing first century type Holy Spirit movement work in India, and that is a, just a, a oh, what a blessing to behold that. Uh, today's message is a continuation of our exploration of Jesus' upper room discourse that we began last week. Actually, Micah kind of, Pastor Micah kind of started with it with a, uh, talking about the feet washing ceremony that Jesus did with his disciples. That was just after that is when the upper room discourse began. Jesus did that beginning in uh, John chapter 13, verse 31. Again, we're going to continue forward over the next several Sundays because this is the longest dis discourse that Jesus gives in scripture this morning we'll begin with john 14 verses 15 through 31 and then we'll be jumping forward to chapter 16 verses 5 through 15 and the central theme of these verses is the person and work of the holy spirit sounds simple enough that these are challenging verses regarding a challenging subject the role the nature and the function of the holy spirit even with the most careful study of these verses by scholars in the two millennia since they were first written, much remains a mystery. It goes without saying that such mystery holds the potential for all sorts of flights of fancy and error in regard to the Holy Spirit. 
So one must approach these verses prayerfully and carefully, which I have endeavored to do. And But I will give you the same disclaimer that I gave last week. Any failure and accurately speaking on this subject is mine and mine alone due to my failure to not follow the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, we would normally stand up and reverently read the subject scripture. And it's always dangerous to depart from your standard operating procedure, but we're going to do that this morning because, as you can see, there is a lot of verses that we've been reading. So we'll stay seated for the reading of the scripture verses, and I'll cover them as we go through the message this morning. But let us stand and seek the favor of the Lord in prayer. So if you please stand. Father God, hallowed is your name. We thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus, who came to abide among us, who proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom of God, and who, in obedience to you, gave his life on the cross so that we may be delivered from the penalty of sin and have eternal life. We thank you, Father. Open our hearts and minds today, Lord, that we may come to understand what you would have us learn. Help us, Holy Spirit, to focus. Free us from every distraction and illuminate your word unto our understanding. Amen. Please be seated. I'm glad I left this up here from last, last service. I need it. Okay, implicit in the verses we're going to look at today is a question. Why does Jesus ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to be with the disciples? The answer to this question is one of profound significance, not only to the disciples at the Last Supper, Jesus gave this discourse, but to us as well. Now, I suggest there are at least four reasons we can discern from these verses for why the Father, at Jesus' request, sent to us the Holy Spirit. The first reason for the provision of the Spirit is to enable obedience, our obedience. Listen to what the Lord says, in, beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now at verse 15, Jesus begins saying that because the disciples love him, they show their love through their obedience to him. Now the disciples were often a confused lot. There were times they didn't know whether they were going or coming, it seems. But it is clear that they love Jesus, and it is abundantly clear that Jesus loved them. Because he loved them and he was going away, he tells them he will ask the Father to send another helper. That Jesus will send another helper, think about this, clearly implies that a helper has already been with the disciples. Jesus is clearly referring to himself here. The another helper will come after he departs. Now, the Greek word here for helper is parakletos and has the connotation of a legal counselor, advocate, or intercessor. 
there's another word that Greek word that's significant too, and that is the word another. The, the verb used here is alan, which means another of the same kind. Jesus is telling his disciples that while he was interceding for them in the presence of the Father, there will also be another helper just like him to take his place among them while they remain on earth. Now, don't miss the Trinitarian significance here. These verses are profound. Jesus has already taught the disciples that he and the Father are one, that they have the same essence, that they are distinct persons. Jesus is teaching that he and the helper to come are of the same kind, that the helper is like him. So logically, it means that the helper is also like God. Jesus is like God. Jesus is like the helper. Ergo, the helper, the parakletos, is like God also. Three, three persons, one God. Now, it is difficult for us to understand the triune nature of the one God, even after 2,000 years of church teaching on the subject. Imagine how this was for the disciples in the room with Jesus. Frankly, their minds were blown. They were, they were dumbfounded. Thomas Constable notes, it was hard for these Jewish believers who had grown up believing that there is but one God to grasp that Jesus was God. It must have been even more difficult for them to think of the spirit of God as a person rather than as God's influence. Nevertheless, New Testament revelation is clear that there are three persons within the Godhead. And if you really want to expand your mind without use of chemical substances, ponder the nature of the Holy Spirit. It is unfathomable. So straight away in the first three verses, the disciples are astonished by Jesus' teaching on the coming helper. Jesus will be asking the Father to send another person who is just like him. The scripture is clear, though. Only those who believe receive the Spirit. The world can neither see him nor know him. The disciples, on the other hand, knew him. The parakletos, because he empowered Jesus. They have seen the work of the Spirit manifested through Jesus, had even themselves experienced his strengthening on occasions when they needed help when preaching and performing miracles themselves. But Jesus is promising them something new. Not only would the helper dwell with them, as Jesus had, but will indwell in him. Now, Jesus changes the metaphor in verses 18 and 19, from the disciples being without a helper to their being orphans without a parent. There was nothing worse in Jewish society. If there was anything worse in Jewish society than a, a, a widow, it was an orphan. It was a, usually a short life of severe destitution and vulnerability. Jesus is telling them, I am not going to orphan you. That would have resonated in their minds. He's telling them that they should have faith that he would come back to them. He tells them, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Now this passage, I think, presents Jesus speaking about his, about his personal presence with them. So he's most likely talking about his post-resurrection appearance on Easter Sunday after he is resurrected. Throughout John, 
John's complicated. Sometimes there, he's got multiple things going on at one time when he's, when he's speaking to us, when he's writing to us. There's multiple messages there. This one, though, I think is fairly clear. Jesus is talking about, I am going, you're going to see me again in just a few days. In just a few days, you're going to see me again. And it is that appearance would convince the 11 in that day that he was exactly who he said he was, the son of God. And so it's one of the, one of the key markers, I think, that shows that the, the validity of the scripture is how these men radically changed after that day. They had seen something that no one had ever seen before, and that was the resurrection Christ, resurrected Christ on Easter Sunday. Now, in verse, beginning in verse 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Now, how are we to understand these verses? Is Jesus' faithfulness to us conditional upon our obedience? In other words, what we do or don't do will affect how Jesus relates to us. Can we lose our salvation if we are disobedient, if we fail to keep his commandments? You see, our obedience as followers of Christ does not make God love us any more than he would otherwise love us. God's love for all people is perfect and complete. In its essence, his love is as great as it can be. God can't love us any more than he loves us. He loves us to his maximum extent. There is nothing we can do that changes his love for us. Yet, unique among all creatures, we possess a God-given free will. Thus, we have agency to affect that relationship. The relationship can be affected by us. We have the moral agency to be disobedient even after our justification. We can affect our relationship with God. Now, Judas, when he's asking Jesus this question, he's asking a question, how is it that you're not going to publicly manifest yourself if you're going to be the Messiah? If you're not going to take the throne, raise an army, and kick the Romans out of Judea? Again, Thaddeus and the rest of the disciples are missing the point. Once again, they're missing the point. Jesus doesn't even bother to answer Thaddeus's misconception. He stays on the subject of the importance of loving and obeying him. Now, I think there are five aspects of obedience that we should be mindful of. First, obedience is an act of love for Jesus, and it is an expression of our faith in him. Obedience is not only an act of love and faith, but obedience is also an act of worship. This love for, faith in, and worship of Jesus always results in intimate fellowship with him and the Father. If you do those things, you cannot help but come closer to Jesus. 
And this obedience leads to blessing from the Father. You want a roadmap to happiness, to peace? There it is. And five easy, profound steps. But this brings me to another point. In commenting on these verses, Thomas Constable confronts us with an unassailable fact. Some believers love Jesus more than other believers do. This results in some believers obeying him more than others and enjoying a more intimate relationship with him and a greater understanding of him than others enjoy. But the fact remains, remains some believers do not obey. These are strong words here, folks. Such disobedience is unloving towards the Savior who died for the forgiveness of our sins. It is utterly contemptuous, disrespectful, and a breach of faith that results in a ruptured relationship. The Father's blessing cannot be bestowed upon a believer in such a rebellious state. If you want God's blessing, you have to be obedient to him. For the believer in a state of disobedience, the only blessing you can expect if God shows you favor, is discipline. Trust me, I've been there. You don't want to go there, but you're happy that the Lord disciplines you to bring you back to a right relationship with him. For those who never place their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, they remain in their sin, and their disobedience leads to eternal separation from God which is eternal death. The way to become a great lover of Jesus is by learning to appreciate the greatness of his love for us. How? By prayerfully studying his written word, embrace it, and be obedient to what he says. Now, a second reason why Jesus came or sent the Holy Spirit to us through the Father, and that is provision of future understanding. In uh, verse 25, Jesus tells his disciples, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you, to your remembrance, all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let, your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Now, in the first service, I was kind of overtaken by a little something, and I'll share it with you again because it's sort of one of the things I get upset about is people quote, quoting scripture without, out, of, out of context and not, particularly when Jesus is saying it, not ascribing it to him. Any political pundit that has the guts to say, to claim Jesus' words for himself and, and proclaim that let not hearts be troubled, I encourage him to read the entire scripture 
and ascri ascribe it to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Enough said on that topic. Again and again throughout this gospel, John recalls instances where everyone failed to understand who Jesus was and what he was about. Even his very own disciples frequently failed to understand his teaching. They even demonstrated a stunning inability to even remember the lessons of significant events. Why? Because they could only go so far in their socially and religiously conditioned worldview and in their sin-damaged, limited cognitive ability. In other words, their ability to think. Paul speaks to this inability. Theologians have a phrase for it. They call it the noetic effect of sin. One of those big words, sorry. Sin affects even our ability to properly think, to properly reason. The apostles needed divine help and understanding. So do we. And that help comes from the Holy Spirit. In verses 25 through 31, Jesus is, is encouraging them with a promise that they would fully understand his words later. Jesus identifies the helper as the Holy Spirit. The Father would send the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, that is, as Jesus' representative, and with exactly the same attitude toward God's will that Jesus had. As the Son had come as the Father's representative, soon the Holy Spirit would come as Jesus' representative. The Spirit would teach the disciples all things, which in the present context refers to all the things that were obscure to the disciples then and about which the disciples kept asking the same questions. When the helper comes, clarity would come. Now we understand the Holy Spirit has many ministries. And this particular view here, the ministry is teaching. The illumination that Jesus promised here was specifically to the 11 and, to, and their contemporaries. It was a promise to those who had heard his teaching before the cross, but did not yet understand it until after the resurrection. Praise God, the Holy Spirit continues his teaching ministry today by enlightening us as we study scripture, particularly in the application of the Bible, Bible's truths to contemporary circumstances. The disciples continued apprehension and anxiety at the prospect of Jesus leaving them without clarifying what they didn't understand, drew out these wonderful words of encouragement. Peace I live with you, leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not, not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is giving them an inheritance here when he says, I, my peace I give to you. It's an inheritance of peace. He gives that same inheritance to each and one of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, and that is his peace. That peace, the world cannot give peace. That can only come from the Prince of Peace. He is the only source of true peace. The world cannot provide peace because it fails to recognize and is powerless to correct the fundamental source of strife, namely the sinful nature of humankind. Jesus made peace possible by his work on the cross. He will establish universal peace when he comes to reign on earth as the Messiah. He established it now in, now in the hearts and lives of those who believe in him and submit to him through his representative, the indwelling 
Holy Spirit. This peace is obviously not an exemption from conflicts and trials or even the disquiet of one's own heart. We all remember that Jesus himself felt troubled by his impending crucifixion. Rather, we should think of this peace as a settled confidence that comes from knowing that Jesus was in right relationship with the Father and that we too are in right relationship with him because we are in right relationship with Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. As we focus on this reality, as we prayerfully meditate, it, meditate upon it daily, we can experience peace in the midst of trouble and fear, just like Jesus did. The third reason for the coming of the Holy Spirit is the provision of conviction. Now here we jump forward to chapter 16. John records the words of Jesus, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judge. Now Jesus continues the theme that he began back in chapter 14 and, and talking about the Holy Spirit. In contrast to their earlier questions, now the disciples aren't asking Jesus anything. They're not asking him where he's going. And the idiom of our day, they have checked out. Their emotions have overtaken them, and they are no longer focused on Jesus. They see Jesus' departure as a disaster for themselves, and the thought of persecution undoubtedly added fear and anxiousness to their grief. But his words were not meant to scold or even to embarrass them, but rather to refocus their attention on him and his teaching. Jesus now tells the disciples that it is, in fact, better for them if he goes away. He gives them more information about what the Spirit's coming will mean. And it is profound. Let's look at these words again. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. Now, I hate to bore you with any Greek, but the Greek word for convict here is elixai. Some commentators are of the opinion that the, the use of this ver verb indicates that the Holy Spirit convicts or condemns the world in a legal judicial sense. Judgment is at the root of this interpretation. And make, make no mistake, Jesus is and will come back to judge the world. But that's not what he's talking about here. This verb is used 18 times in the New Testament by Matthew, Luke, Paul, James, Jude, the writer of Hebrews, whoever that might have been, and finally John. Yet the verb is not used in the judicial sense. In every case, it involves showing someone his or her sin with a view to securing repentance. 
As a theologian, Robert Pine says, in John 16, 8, the Holy Spirit is involved in pointing out sin in order to bring about repentance. The legal idea suggested by some seems derived from the use of the term in extra-biblical literature, whereas the biblical writers use the verb primarily to describe correction, not prosecution or conviction. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict people of their sin so they might repent, not to convict people of their sin so they will burn in hell. Let's look at Jesus' words more closely. We should recall that much earlier in the Gospel of John, the Apostle tells that failure to believe on Jesus after he has come in the, is the great damning sin. There is only one unforgivable sin, and that is to not believe in Jesus Christ. To reject the forgiveness of one sin that was purchased through the death of Jesus upon the cross is truly the only forgivable sin. All other sins are forgiven in and through him. The Spirit also convicts the world of righteousness. What does this mean? Normally, righteousness refers to truly right conduct and standing before God. It is Jesus' righteousness that saves us from hell, not ours, him standing in our place. The world does not have that. The world has, it doesn't have a clue about righteousness. The righteousness that people profess to have is far inferior to the righteousness that they need for acceptance with God. Please listen. There are many, many people who try to live moral and ethical lives. They are generally kind, considerate people who show a genuine interest in the welfare of others. From the worldly point of view, they are good people. I know people like this, and I genuinely enjoy being around them. It is a sad fact that the lives they live are more righteous than the lives lived by many Christians. But they are far, far from where the holy God means for them to be. Like those of us who have recognized and confessed our deadly sin-induced separation from God and stand before him in the righteousness of Christ, they too were created for holiness, to be set apart for relationship with God. God means for them to be saved. Any doctrine that holds that they were elected by God for damnation errs in its interpretation of scripture and impugns the character of the holy God. The spirit convicts the world of the inadequacy of its false righteousness and moves the unsaved to seek the true righteousness that only Jesus provides. In his early earthly ministry, Jesus had convicted those in whom he contacted of their inadequate righteousness, but now he was going to the Father. Jesus' ascension to the Father is testimony that his righteousness is the standard for divine acceptance. Humans have no righteousness apart from Christ Jesus. The Spirit continues his ministry. He now convicts the world of its lack of righteousness. The ministry of the Spirit is not simply to be a transformative agent in each of our lives, in each individual's life, even though that's profoundly important. It's not all about us. The Holy Spirit is working to transform you to be an effective worker in the fields of harvest. 
You are to be active in the body of Christ, ministering to others and spreading the gospel message of salvation in and through Christ Jesus. We are to be reaching out in the love of Christ to all around us, declaring his gospel to them in word and in deed. We must ask ourselves, are we actively participating in this ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of his righteousness and the world's lack thereof? Is the state of the culture in this country indicative that we are? That we individually as believers and corporately as the church have been about God's work? Obviously not. Just look around. Third, the spirit convicts the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. What is Jesus saying here? Now, this was very clear to me. While the previous two views are oriented towards conviction for the purpose of repentance, it is clear to me that verse 11 is not. Judicial conviction, that is judgment, is clearly in view here. The text could not be clearer. The Spirit will convict the world in judgment for its rejection of Jesus. The Spirit will judge individuals for their, their rejection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus constituted a condemnation of Satan, the devil. He lost at the cross. Since the ruler of the world stands condemned, his children, those that do not confess and repent of their sins, who do not embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, can expect the same treatment. Make no mistake, when Jesus returns, the wheat shall be separated from the tares, the sheep separated from the goats. For those who do not stand in right relationship with Jesus, who have not confessed their sin, repented of it, and are now imputed with his righteousness, God's judgment, his wrath, will be upon them as it would be for the author of lies, destruction, and death. Finally, we come to the fourth reason why God the Father sends the Holy Spirit, and that is to guide us and to glorify Jesus. Verses 12 through 13 begin the fifth and final passages regarding the promise of the Holy Spirit in the upper room discourse. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now there is one theological view of this passage is that it focuses on the completion of the revelation of Jesus brought by the Father. In this view, after the ascension of Jesus back to the Father, the Holy Spirit would come upon the apostles and all that was confusing to them would become clear. Clarity of spiritual insight was an apostolic gift which resulted ultimately in the writing of the New Testament by the apostles. In this view, the work of the Spirit prescribed in these verses applied to the apostles exclusively. That is not my view. I don't believe it is the view of Pastor Micah. 
Certainly, when you travel 9,000 miles away and see the Holy Spirit move like he witnessed in India this past week. This view is correct. The Spirit did act to recall and illuminate the words of Jesus that Jesus spoke to his apostles. The Spirit most definitely guided the apostles to accurately recall the teachings of Jesus and guided them in their writings. We have the New Testament through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But this view is incomplete. The Spirit recalls, authenticates, and enlivens the teachings of Jesus for every generation. Praise God for that. He also works creatively in the church. The work of the Spirit remains dynamic, faithfully bringing the church to see his message in a new way. The all-truth of verse 13 may be something that is completely unexpected. As it was for Peter being led from Jewish Joppa to Gentile Caesarea to bring the gospel to Cornelius. There is no way Peter, as a devout Jewish man, would have traveled to see Cornelius, a Roman soldier, in a Gentile city without the leading of the Holy Spirit. There's no way Peter would have ate bacon without the leading of the Holy Spirit. Like Peter, believe, believers, whether in leadership positions or not, must be alert to the leading of the Spirit into new areas of ministry. Cautionary note. We must also be alert to self-appointed teachers and New Age prophets who have laid claim to the Spirit's authority as they've unveiled new unbiblical teachings. Now, you heard me spout about one of my pet peeves about political pundits using God's word out of context. Well, hear this too. It's another something the Spirit had just laid on my heart. Whether it's the prosperity gospel, the name and reclaim it gospel, the social justice gospel, or some cultish heresy, these are not the gospel we have been given. These are in direct opposition and contravention to what Jesus proclaimed. The work of the Holy Spirit never contradicts the teachings of Scripture. Jesus is the Son of God. He is not a lesser deity. The work of the Spirit never deflects glory away from Jesus. To the contrary, the Spirit always glorifies him. When we encounter any teaching that contradicts Scripture, that deflects, diminishes, or denies the divinity of Jesus, that does not reflect the glory upon him, these we must vigorously oppose. And when I say vigorously oppose, I mean vigorously oppose. You get in the face of people who preach false gospel. Just as the Apostle John did nearly 2,000 years ago. In conclusion, in the upper room discourse, we see Jesus speaking difficult words to his disciples. He challenged their every presupposition regarding his work as Messiah. What they thought they knew was challenged. Their understanding of the coming of God's kingdom was not unfolding as they expected. All of this left them unmoored, adrift on a sea of confusion, tossed about in a tempest of desperate emotion. 
Yet everything Jesus said to them was meant to strengthen their faith. His promise of sending the Holy Spirit as another advocate, another helper, another comforter was the supreme promise of his continuing presence to the end of the age. We are like the disciples in the upper room that night with Jesus. We too face moments of doubt, despair, confusion, bewilderment, and loss. But the words Jesus spoke to the disciples are words for us too. His words come down to us through the quarters of time so that we may believe, so that our hearts will not be troubled nor afraid, that we may have a peace that is beyond all understanding. He strengthens our faith, calms our spirits, and gives us courage to embolden us in our work for him. All we have to do is love him by being obedient to him, by trusting him, by opening yourself up to the transforming and empowering work of the Holy Spirit who abides in you. If you are a follower of Christ, if you embraced him as your savior, savior and Lord, then the very spirit of God resides within you to help you in every step of your walk of faith. If you have yet to trust in Jesus, this very same Holy Spirit is calling out to you to lay the burdens of your sin before him, repent of them, and accept him as your Savior and your Lord. And in doing so, gain eternal life and a peace beyond all understanding. It's all up to us. Do we let the Spirit into our hearts to transform us into new creatures, set aside for service to worship of an almighty God? Or do we reject him, leaving us adrift in a dying world, orphaned, alone, and without hope? Come to Jesus and let the Holy Spirit transform your life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we were able to gather this morning to worship you in song and study of your word. We thank you that you have returned our mission safe team, missions team safe to us. We thank you for, your, for their faithfulness and thank you for the work that you did through them. And we thank you, Father, that when the Lord Jesus ascended on high, that you poured out your spirit upon your people. So abide with us to enlighten, transform, and empower us. As your children, we confess, Lord, how easy it is for us to grieve the Spirit, to quench his work by our pride, to grieve him by our disobedience, our intoleration, our jealousy, animosity, and unkind thoughts and bitter words, or our failures to love others as you love us. For these things, we ask your forgiveness. If there is anyone who has gathered with us this morning that has not yet entered into saving relationship with you, Lord, we pray that the Spirit will lead them to confess their need for you, that you are the only way to God the Father, and they will accept the gift of salvation that is available to them because of what you did for them at the cross. Holy Spirit, I ask that in the same way that you pick all of us up in your embrace, that you would fill us to overflowings, that Christ may be increasingly precious to us, and that our lives will be, may be increasingly conformed to his image. Come and meet with us, Lord, as individuals and as a church family.
come and pour out your spirit on this church, this city, this nation, this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.